You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. All right, thanks a lot, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Frank Holland in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Nearly a million jobs added in July, unemployment rate down to 5.4%. So is the labor market stronger than we thought? And buybacks, they're back. Companies have extra cash and they're putting it to use. We'll tell you one sector where the buybacks should keep rolling. And speaking of extra cash, the state of Idaho running a $900 million surplus. So taxpayers, they're getting a refund. We'll talk to the state's governor. But first, we begin with the markets following that strong jobs report. Christina Partsenevelis with the numbers. Christina? Yay, Frank. Markets mostly higher across the board. NASDAQ down about 61 points. The S&P 500 also off its best levels. Nonetheless, strategists at Goldman Sachs as well as Oppenheimer earlier in the week increasing their year-end target to 4,700. So we're a little off on that point right now, but that does represent a major upside from where we are now. U.S. government bond yields rose today after labor or the Labor Department data showed the unemployment rate declined to its lowest level since the pandemic took hold. So yields rise as bond prices fall. We know that. But funny how just earlier in the week we saw this low of 1.112 when we're talking about deflation. So look at where we are now. And that's why financials are leading the market, helped by those higher yields. Materials boosted by chemicals and industrial metals. Energy outperforming despite crude looking to cap its worst week since October. With the Delta variant top of mind, the restaurant sector taking a major hit. I know Frank loves to go to Jack in the Box, Cheesecake Factory, and Red Robin all down for the week. And we also have to end on this news. Trading app Robinhood surging today. Where we can see that. Look, up 47% since the IPO, up almost 10%. That's because early stakeholders filed to sell 98 million shares yesterday, but they found out today they'll have to wait for regulatory clearance. So I guess they'll also have to wait to make that roughly, what, $3 billion plus in cash? Frank? <laughs> Christina, thanks a lot. Thanks for tell, showing us that it's Friday just by your attitude. We yeah, Friday! All right, let's dig a little further into that strong, <laughs> that strong jobs report with hiring in July rising at its fastest pace in nearly a year. Despite some growing concerns about the Delta variant, our Steve Leisman is here with a look at the industries that are seeing the most job growth. Steve, what are you seeing? Frank, you know what this is, fun. Fun is back in America, or at least it was in the first part of July. And the workforce that caters to our whims and whimsies, well, they punched the time clock in much greater numbers in July than they have since the pandemic began. Take a look at the numbers. Total, Frank told you, 945,000. By the way, that was 100,000 more than expected. Private sector, 703,000, of which more than half comes from leisure and hospitality. So let's look at where those jobs were. We're going to dig inside it. Look, Bars and restaurants up 253, hotels up 74,000, arts, entertainment, recreation up 53,000, gambling, amusement up 40,000. And from a separate category here, they were back on the movie sets. They were back in the music studios up 18,000 in that category. Now, leisure and hospitality was the hardest hit sector, and it's coming back fast with the major question being, how much does the Delta variant and the labor shortage hold back hiring? Well, like leisure and hospitality, or maybe because of it, the full job market not yet back to where it was pre-pandemic. We still have 5.7 million jobs to go. But the three-month average of job growth, nearly 850,000. Expectations for the strong pace to continue. The job market might get back to where we were in February 2020 by year end. Frank? You know, Steve, you mentioned something I want to kind of go back to. Um, Are there any signs of the Delta variant here in this jobs report seeing any impact to so far? 
Um, well, the one possible impact was that maybe it was stronger. But the other thing is that this survey, Frank, was done before the 15th of the month or in the actually the Saturday that includes the 12th, if you really want to be technical about it. So it may have been too early. If you remember, it's only in the last couple weeks of July and now this first week of August that it seems like the Delta variant is front page news. So it may be something we see with slower job growth in August, depending on how much economic contraction and renewed lockdowns we really have. I'm hearing very mixed signals about that with some places just uh, uh, going ahead full steam without really changing much in terms of what's open and what's closed because of Delta. Our, our Steve Leisman. Thanks a lot, Steve. So will the strong jobs report yeah. move up the Fed's taper timeline? And what do the gains tell us about hiring and wages as the new Delta variant of COVID spreads all across the country? Joining me now are Michelle Meyer, head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Global Research, and Peter Quigley, president and CEO of staffing company Kelly Services. Thank you both so much for being here. Michelle, if you don't mind, we're going to start things off with you. So a lot of data to unpack here. Uh, unemployment fell slightly, 50 basis points. Huge gains for hospitality, 380,000 jobs. Education had some big gains as well. We'll get to that in a minute. What does this all mean for the markets and maybe for some people, even more importantly, the potential of tapering coming this year? Well, I think it's just as Steve suggested, this was a real relief for the markets because there was so much focus on what was going to potentially go wrong in the economy, wrong in the data. A lot of you know discussion around downside risks. And then this jobs report comes, which was, you know, really everything and more that you can want from a jobs report, a strong overall job creation number, net positive revisions, a low unemployment rate, wages increasing, you know, kind of across the board. So I think that, you know, market participants saw this as, okay, there's more fundamental strength in the economy. We do need to be cognizant of the risks coming in the coming weeks because of the Delta variant. Um, but at least there was a really good foundation before uh, we, we see that transpire in the data flow. All right, Peter, turn it over to you. We know you're on the phone right now. Um, our Kate Rogers, she's done some excellent reporting today on the teacher shortage around the country. Um, a lot of big gains in education. Just to clarify for everybody, uh, there were 240,000 government jobs added last month, the majority believed to be in education. Um, do you see worker demand remaining strong for teachers? And is there any other area where you see worker demand remaining strong? Well, we see uh, strength across uh, all of our sectors, Frank. But Education in particular, you, you saw an unusually high number of jobs added in July, which is as a result of uh, schools um, starting tutoring programs or extending tutoring programs, um, looking to open their schools earlier uh, to try to remedy the uh, pandemic gap year that we, we had last year. Um, we're the largest provider of substitute teachers in the United States, and uh, I will tell you that the number of teacher vacancies that we're seeing uh, are really reaching alarming rates because uh, so many teachers bowed out during the pandemic and uh, the influx of new teachers is uh, not sufficient to fill that demand. So um, not only are we concerned about schools reopening, but we also want to make sure that every classroom has an instructor in it. You know, Peter, you talked about a lot of teachers bowing out. I think a lot of people kind of bowed out the economy a bit because of their concerns over COVID. Michelle, turn it back over to you. Um, we saw wages go up. We saw hiring go up. With the Delta variant in play, in play here for the economy, the market, just all of our public health concerns, how do you see that influencing what we're going to see forward, especially when it comes to the hospitality hiring and, and especially in bars and restaurants where the majority of that hiring was happening? 
Yeah, well, look, I mean, a critical factor for continuing to see healthy job growth is labor supply. And and we know that this has been a big challenge for the last several months, that there's this extraordinary demand for workers to satisfy all of the consumer spending and, and, and behavioral changes that we have seen following the reopening. Um, but yet people haven't been coming back as quickly um, as maybe the economy would really need in order to see, you know, that, that pace of growth for overall consumer spending and job creation, et cetera. So yes, Frank, to your question, absolutely, we need to see a further rise in the labor force. Um, there should be um, a path for that, especially since we're now seeing stronger wage growth. We are seeing um, the unemployment insurance benefits expire. Uh, back to the conversation around schools, uh, they are staffing up because they're looking to open in person in September. That should alleviate some of the child care concerns. So um, the hope is that more workers come back in, they get incentivized by the wage increases, and that satisfies some of this demand. But you have to admit, it's been happening a bit more slowly than I think we would have all liked to have seen. Yeah, speaking of things coming a little bit more slowly than we would have liked, e-commerce, things are very slow. Peter, I'm turning back over to you. Uh, FedEx recently announced it's looking for about 80,000 workers. This is a couple months ahead of when they would normally do their holiday hiring. Are those workers actually out there? Like, where do you find 80,000 people? Well, it's a great question, Frank. And notwithstanding the strong jobs report, as Michelle noted, there's still a, a, a mismatch between the demand for workers and the supply of workers. Um, there's also a mismatch in the urgency with which employers need to put people to work to run their businesses. Hiring managers want people now. And workers are a little more relaxed in, in being a little more choosy about what jobs they take. And then there's a mismatch in terms of skills. Hiring managers uh, complain that they don't uh, find workers with the right skills, and uh, uh, employees complain that they can't find the right job to meet their uh, their requirements. So there really is a um, a mismatch in the labor markets right now, and uh, you know, eighty thousand is a big number, uh, but all of our customers uh, and employers at large are going to need to figure out this uh, mismatch. Uh, to try to get more people back into the workforce. Now, we're going to have to wrap this up in just a second. But, Peter, actually, one more quick question for you, just kind of a yes or no. Um, we're going to talk about this more in a second. But the child tax credit, uh, a form of stimulus, uh, a lot of people thought that stimulus kept people away from working. Right now you're saying employers are looking to hire right now. Does the child tax credit influence uh, people's decisions to return to the workforce at all? Well, we think to the extent that there are um, working parents that have struggled with the uh, environment, the pandemic environment, that um, something that would encourage them to uh, find a reason to re-enter the workforce. The number of women in particular that left the workforce during the pandemic is, um, is staggering. And uh, so anything we can do to incent uh, and create opportunities for people to get back in the workforce will be beneficial to the economy. All right, Michelle Meyer and Peter Quickly, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, for both of you, for being here. We appreciate it. All right, another critical measure of economic growth, consumer spending. And according to MasterCard data, consumers are spending and they are splurging across channels. And that's largely thanks to the child tax credit. Here to drill down on the robust consumer, Linda Kirkpatrick, president of North America for MasterCard. Linda, oh, we might be having some Hi, technical problems. Oh, there we go. We can hear you. Oh, there we go. All fixed. Uh, Linda, thank you so much for being here. 
My pleasure, Frank. Great to see you. Great to see you as always. So according to your research, consumers are spending more brick and mortar spending up almost 16 percent year over year in July. And according to your research, the child tax credit, that was a catalyst with five more payments coming up. Are we going to continue to see that strong in-store buying? Well, Frank, uh, our spending pulse results do show very encouraging signs of recovery. Uh, July was actually the 11th consecutive month of retail sales growth. And, uh, you know, in July, 10.9% increase in retail sales. That's quadruple the average growth for July. Uh, We do believe that this was fueled in part by the child tax credit Uh, Because what we saw was concentrated spending in the days immediately following the first distribution of those uh, tax payments on July 15th. So, uh, so yeah, it, it did have a, a contribution. And while e-commerce continues to play a role uh, for retail, consumers all are also um, they're returning to brick and mortar spending. So we know a lot of employers are kind of rethinking their mask mandates, rethinking about if and when people should come back to the office. But when I look at these numbers, I see that jewelry and apparel sales are up 80 percent year over year. Jewelry sales in particular up 50 percent over July 2019. Are consumers saying they're ready to get the economy back open? They're ready to start going back out and dressing up? Well, consumers are certainly speaking with their wallets. Uh, More than 80 percent of retail sales were actually in person, especially on the weekends in July. And in-store sales were up 15.5 percent in July. And, you know, as you said, Frank, where we're seeing the most significant growth, uh, department stores up 80 percent. We're seeing uh, apparel also up uh, significantly, restaurants up over 60 percent. And then, of course, travel. Uh, we're seeing, you know, airlines and lodging are not back to pre-pandemic growth levels. But uh, what we're observing is that where there's an ability to travel because restrictions are lifted, there's a really strong consumer demand and desire for travel. So speaking of spending, uh, there's so many more, you know, varied ways to spend, I should say. There's cryptocurrency. There's also buy now, pay later. Big move, uh, big deal in the buy now, pay later space earlier this week with Square. How does that impact consumer spending? And actually, how does it impact your business when you see people looking to do that buy now, pay later? Yeah, Frank, we've watched this space very closely and have uh, seen increased consumer interest in buy now, pay later during the pandemic. Um, We do believe that these trends are complementary to existing payments methods. And we do believe that buy now, pay later is aligned with our strategy, uh, which is really to offer Uh, consumers and small businesses choice in how they want to pay and be paid. Uh, We at MasterCard invested early on in buy now, pay later capabilities and other digital tools like uh, click to pay and tokenization. And the momentum that we're seeing in this space now with digital is really a validation of of this investment. uh, We're also partners with both Afterpay and Square. They use our services uh, and fraud tools, and they also issue our products. So we're looking forward to continuing to work with them as as they advance their buy now, pay later efforts. And we're also going to continue to invest in this space. Uh, You can look out for more announcements from us in the buy now, pay later space uh, later this year. We'll certainly be watching. Linda Kirkpatrick from MasterCard, we appreciate you being here. Thank you. All right, coming up, can you spot the common thread between UPS, Chevron, Alibaba, and Moderna? Well, they're all on pace to end the week higher, and shareholders are starting to see increasing signs of optimism about the future of these companies. We'll tell you why on the other side of this break. 
plus choppy trading for Canopy Growth after a mixed earnings report. Shares now down more than 60% from their February high. We'll hear from the Canopy CEO about the quarter and the path to legalization here in the U.S. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Share buybacks are at near record levels with companies in seemingly every sector announcing plans as the economic recovery continues. Our Josh Lipton is at the NASDAQ with a closer look at the return of the buyback. Hey, Josh. So, Frank, buybacks have been bouncing back. That is a theme we have been consistently seeing and hearing. For example, UPS just yesterday announcing that its board approved a new share repurchase program of $5 billion, joining others recently making buyback news like Baker Hughes, Shell, Chevron, Alibaba, and Moderna, among others. In most cases, those stocks are down more than 10% from their 52-week highs. Now, last year, analysts say most companies stopped doing buybacks, in part because of the pandemic, the ensuing economic turmoil, cash flow became king. But now signs of a shift. Goldman's David Costin says U.S. corporate buyback announcements totaling $683 billion so far this year. That is the second largest total on record at this point in the year. So where do buybacks, though, go from here? Well, that's a debate. Now, some market strategists say there are headwinds. Certain sectors like tech and discretionary are now looking expensive, they'll argue buybacks can make less sense at price evaluations. Bank of America analysts say there's political risk, too, that we need to think about with potential tax changes. But Howard Silverblatt of S&P Dow Jones Indices bets buybacks maintain their momentum in the second half. The Fed has now given approval to banks to do buybacks. Profits and cash flow are strong, he says. What could that mean for the broader market? Well, it's another means of support for stocks, reducing share count, boosting earnings per share. And Costin agrees, by the way, raising his price target to among the highest on the street in part due to that bet on buybacks. Of course, one big question mark, increasing concern about the Delta variant and its potential economic impact. Frank, back to you. All right, Josh, thanks a lot. For more on buybacks with markets at record highs and the sectors where investors should expect to see increased announcements, we have two people here. We got Nancy Tangler, Laffler Tangler, Chief Investment Officer. And we also have joining us on the CNBC Newsline, Paul Hickey, Bespoke Investment Group co-founder. You know what, Nancy, we're going to start things off with you, if you don't mind. Buybacks. Um, Are there any particular sectors we should look at? And is there any common theme kind of threading together the companies that are looking to do these buybacks? Yeah, Frank, thanks so much for having me. Um, Listen, what we've been seeing is that uh, CEO confidence is at historic highs, cash on the balance sheet, super strong. And then you've got this significant amount of unused credit that uh, CEOs have access to. So we just saw Apple uh, issue a 40-year bond and use it to uh, for capital allocation. And, and we've been writing about it, I know others have too, that this has provided a floor uh, under the market, which is why we haven't seen a major correction yet this year. It's been kind of rotating through sectors. So um, I I think this last earnings season, what we saw were a lot of energy companies announcing uh, buybacks and dividend increases in tandem. And that's actually what I prefer to see. Uh, But in terms of sector focus, uh, I'll leave that to to my um, other get to my friend and other guest, uh, Mr. Hickey, because that's the area where I think Bespoke really digs in and does great work. So, Paul, going over to you, uh, you know, there's some companies out there, some big name companies that are, you know, pretty uh, in favor of buybacks, I should say. We're talking about a Home Depot, an Apple, a Microsoft, even a J.P. Morgan. What kind of impact does that have on those companies and what kind of impact does that have on the broader market? Yeah. So, hi. Um, So when we look at buybacks, I mean, there's 
you tend to see two different, you know, you like to distinguish the buybacks, whether it's company, you know, funding the buyback with debt or using cash or the company, you know, whether the buyback is actually decreasing share count or if it's, um, if it's just, that, you know, offsetting the dilutive impact of stock options. You often do see that in the tech sector. Uh, and you saw it years ago, you would, you would frequently see that, that the buybacks wouldn't even be enough to offset the impact of stock options. So, but as you mentioned, Frank, um, stocks like Home Depot, Apple, Microsoft, J.P. Morgan, and Walmart, over the last 10 years, they've seen their share counts because of buybacks decline from anywhere from 10% to 35% um, over the last 10 years. So those are companies where the buybacks are really making a difference. Um, and then as, you know, with respect to individual sectors, uh, you know, it was touched on earlier in the lead-up to the segment. So, um, I think Josh mentioned Howard Silverblatt from S&P discussing it. Financials. Um, financials have a lot of cash, and um, the financial crisis was over a decade now, so the regulators are starting to loosen their grip, and the, the companies and the banks are going to be using that money uh, increasingly to increase um, returns to shareholders. And as Nancy mentioned, companies will either do it um, through buybacks or stock dividends or a combination of the two, uh, but you're definitely seeing the uptick in buybacks and we expect to see that going forward in the financial sector. You know, turning back to the markets, Nancy, uh, the Dow and the S&P 500 both hitting record highs. The Nasdaq down about a half a percent after a really strong jobs report. Now, we look at the numbers, hospitality uh, hiring obviously up. Um, is a lot of this really due to enthusiasm over the recovery? And how does that impact the growth versus value trade? Yeah, definitely, Frank. It is. Uh, we expected to see value get a pop today um, because this this puts a little more pressure, some think, on the Fed. I, I was particularly pleased to see um, hospitality improve. We'll see if that retraces a little bit uh, next next report. But I I also think um, that you're going to see a real pop in jobs when the supplement mental benefits go away. So, you know, many states have already removed them. And if you look at continuing claims, those those states have dropped dramatically in terms of continuing claims versus states that have not uh, removed the supplemental benefits. So I think once we have an incentive for people to go back to work, there's the demand for workers is very high. It's the supply. So we are looking for much stronger growth in the second half than than we saw this last quarter. And then we think we begin to see a slowdown. It's just the math rate of change. Uh, we'll probably then see a return to more normal levels, but still elevated levels of GDP. So we, we like, um, we're moving our portfolios to, toward a growth at a reasonable price focus, and we have been for the last four months. We'll be wrong in the short term potentially, but I think that will be the right place to be uh, at the end of this year and going into 2022. You know, Paul, another seeming uh, impact or side effect of the really strong jobs report were interest rates. The 10-year up right now, we're seeing those yields rise. Um, what sectors, what different businesses do you see being impacted positively by that? And does that continue if we continue to see these strong jobs reports? Yeah, so that's a great point, Frank. Uh, interest rates are a key driver as far as the uh, individual sector performance is concerned. And uh, I was just talking about the financial sector in terms of buybacks. The, it is the most correlated sector in the S&P 500 to moves in the interest rates. So as interest rates go higher, uh, the relative strength of financials picks up. But other sectors that have benefited from that as well are industrials, materials, and small caps. And these are all areas of the market that have lagged since the end of the first quarter. And I, I think uh, we saw a similar occurrence happen later, late last summer and into the fall, where we saw that big shift from tech into some of the reopening plays. And 
it wouldn't surprise us to see some of that shift take place again, where sectors that um, are inversely correlated to interest rates um, are healthcare, utilities, real estate, and even to, to a degree technology. So those, so so that could be another shift uh, that you've seen in the market. That you know we see we've been seeing these uh, pretty big shifts in the market uh, on a you know intermediate basis since the lows last uh, March, and I think you could see another one of those going forward here. So, Nancy, before we go, um, do you have any picks of stocks? We love to pick stocks here on CNBC. Are there any particular stocks that you see benefiting from this current environment? Yeah, actually, three, Frank. I mean, one is Xylem, which is water and water treatment. Uh, while it's run in anticipation of infrastructure, the company just reported earnings. They had um, a bespoke triple play. They beat, they beat, and they raised. And then they also announced that their backlog uh, was was so large that it was going and it would be accretive to margins going forward. So that's one we like a lot. We like Square uh, for the longer term. Uh, the afterpay acquisition was fantastic on a relative price to sales ratio basis. It's not expensive, which is what we look at. And then um, the third name that that uh, I brought to the table. Oh my goodness, did I forget it? Um, yeah, I did. Um, sorry, it's Friday. Um, Amazon. And the reason we like Amazon is obvious, um, but it fits all of our themes. So it's, um, you know, it's not just cloud and and uh, tech, tech, tech cap X spend, but it's consumer uh, discretionary and where the consumer meets digital. And it's done nothing for almost a year. So on a relative price to sales ratio, it's in our range. And so those are three names that we've been adding to recently. Nancy, you must be one of those people going back to the store to shop. How do you forget about Amazon? Just teasing you. Uh, Nancy <laughs> Taylor and Paul Hickey, thank you so much for being here. All right, coming up, Idaho is one of the many states returning money to taxpayers after reporting a record budget surplus at the end of the last fiscal year. We will speak exclusively with Republican Governor Brad Little about the new initiative. And this stock is on pace for its fifth straight week of gains, up 21% in that time for its longest winning streak since December. We'll tell you what's behind that rally coming up next. the exchange. Markets right now a bit mixed. The Dow is up 182 points at its high. Right now up 150. The Dow and the S&P hitting record highs. Remember, interest rates on uh, the 10-year, those have creeped up, excuse me, yields on the 10-year have creeped up. And we're seeing the impact right now on the NASDAQ composite right now down about a half a percent. And here are some of the movers this hour. Spirit Airlines shares, they're sinking again after the CEO apologized for the carrier's recent troubles. He said a combination of staffing shortages, bad weather, and tech problems led to the cancellation of nearly 2,000 flights this week. July marked the stock's fourth straight month of declines, matching its longest streak since 2018. And the CEO of Spirit Airlines will join Closing Bell today at 4 p.m. You don't want to miss it. Shares of Doximity, the self-proclaimed LinkedIn for doctors. Those shares are down now about 6% today. A new story on CNBC.com highlights the spread of vaccine disinformation on that social network. The $10 billion company went public in June with nearly 2 million members and is set to report earnings next week for the first time since its IPO. For much more on that story, you can head over to CNBC.com. And now over to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Hey there, Rahel. Hi, Frank. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. New Jersey is expected to become the latest state to mandate masks for students and teachers in schools. Other states intending to require masks in schools include California, Louisiana and Washington. 
Meantime, Florida is going in the opposite direction. It has just approved private school vouchers if parents feel that their children are being bullied by their school district's COVID safety rules, including mask mandates. In California, the Dixie Fire grew by more than 110 square miles overnight. It's now the largest active wildfire in the country and the third largest in California history. Four people are still missing. The Dixie Fire is one of 100 large fires burning in 14 states. And on the news, reports from on the ground in California, plus fires in Greece and Turkey, forcing thousands to flee. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. And in Afghanistan, the Taliban has claimed responsibility for killing the country's top media information official. The attack comes just days after a failed attempt to kill the acting defense minister. Taliban forces have also captured their first regional capital. You're now up to date. Frank, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel Solomon, thank you. Coming up next, if you're a resident of Idaho, you're about to find just a little bit of extra cash in your pocket. The state starts to return taxpayer money today as part of the biggest tax cut in the GEM state's history. We're going to speak to Governor Brad Little about that next. The Exchange. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. When the pandemic hit, states braced for steep cuts in revenue and spending. But now many governors are actually finding a surprising budget surplus. And they're cutting taxes and returning some of that cash to the people. Alon Moy is here with that story and a special guest. Alon? Well, Frank, more than 20 states have lowered taxes this year, and they're doing it in a couple different ways. Some sent residents their own version of a stimulus check. Others expanded tax credits for middle and low-income workers. There have been reductions in corporate, property, and sales taxes. And 11 states across the country have lowered their income tax rates. That's the most states cutting income taxes at one time in at least two decades, according to the Tax Foundation. Now, the list includes Wisconsin, Nebraska, Arizona, Idaho enacted its biggest tax cut ever. And joining me now in an exchange exclusive interview is the Republican governor of Idaho, Brad Little. Governor Little, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So your state and so many others have seen such a dramatic turnaround in your fiscal outlook. Idaho expecting a billion dollar budget surplus. What's really driving that change in outlook? Well, we were on a great trajectory uh, before the pandemic hit. And then we, you know, we suffered a body blow like most states. Uh, but we always conservatively uh, budgeted, conservatively spent. Uh, we, and that should be a perpetual mission uh, that we continue to keep spending down. And then when this surplus showed up, we just, uh, the easiest thing for us to do was give it back to the people who paid it. So whatever you paid in 2019, you're going to this week, you're going to get nine percent of that back or fifty dollars, whichever is greater. So we're taking that money that we collected uh, that we believe is, you know, above and beyond uh, what's necessary for, a, you know, prudent spending. And we're going to give it back to the taxpayers. We also did some uh, lowering of the rates. We got the lowest rates we've had since 1936. And we did some permanent property tax relief. So you're talking about some permanent tax cuts in addition to that tax rebate. Um, that sounds like you're pretty confident that your state will continue to see economic growth, even though we're now seeing some questions about the impact of the Delta variant and what that could mean for economic activity and for potentially lockdowns in the future. Well, we're, of course, we we have the most modest of all 
uh, orders uh, during the pandemic. And, and we've got this record growth where the fastest growing state in population or the fastest growing state in jobs. You know, the jobs report that came out this morning, we'll get our data uh, soon from the states. But I've, I've been around the state in the last week and everywhere, everybody are raising starting wages, raising all wages, uh, record uh, incomes uh, for businesses and individuals. So I see no indication uh, we are concerned about uh, the new variant and some of our positivity rates. Uh, but we've just got a great booming economy here right now. And the right thing to do is to give some of that back to the taxpayers. We don't know when this is going to normalize. You know, $5 trillion that the federal government's put in there, uh, there's some uncertainty there. So we're, we've got a health, very healthy rainy day fund. We're giving this money back. We want to see what happens when the economy normalizes when we get through COVID and the impact all this stimulus money. Uh, Governor Little, this is Frank Holland back at CNBC headquarters. Uh, just over a third of your population is fully vaccinated, about 37 percent. There was a mask mandate passed in your state. I know you were not in favor of it. You was actually done while you were out of town by the lieutenant governor. Don't you believe or do you believe that masks are an important part of the recovery? You mentioned that, the ta- that your state is booming. Do you think that precautions like mask mandates, social distancing, are those important parts of keeping that recovery going? Well, I've, I've advocated uh, for that since for over a year, and we continue to do it. Most of the best decisions are made locally between either a local health district, a city, a school board, and that's our belief here. Idaho is a very diverse state. You know, we start at the Canadian border, go down to Nevada. Uh, it's very diverse, and, and the one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, but I believe in empowering businesses and local government to do the right thing, and uh, we're we're advocates of vaccination and doing whatever health protocols will keep the spread down. But we are very concerned about it. Governor Little, this is Elon again. How important is increasing that vaccination rate to keeping that economic boom that your state is seeing, keeping that going? And what can you do to encourage more people to get vaccinated? We we continue to message out. Myself, my public health team, local government, businesses, uh, the medical community, we continue to put messages out. If we don't think it's working, we kind of tweak the message to try and uh, get better penetration. You know, every day that goes by, the more people are vaccinated and protected means that their neighbors, friends, family members are aware of that. And we're just urging everybody to get vaccinated. My biggest concern Uh, I had my uh, State Board of Education in this room this morning, and we're talking about uh, getting kids back in college and particularly kids back in school. Because one of the most detrimental things to the economy is if kids aren't back in school and parents are staying home with them, and that will slow down the economy. So we want the vaccination rate to get uh, uh, up and, and protect our Idaho citizens. Governor Little, thank you so much for your time. I know your residents are going to be checking their bank accounts over the next few days for those tax rebates. Frank? Alon, thanks a lot. Yeah, I don't blame them. Some money coming in. All right, coming up, the pot stocks under pressure over the past month as COVID restrictions, they dampen recreational use and the competition just heats up. We're going to hear from the CEO of Canopy Growth about that 
and the growth opportunities here in the U.S. That's coming up next. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Canopy shares having a bit of a choppy run after reporting earnings. You see right here, shares turned positive just before noon. Then they went negative and then positive again after an earnings report where there was a miss on revenue, but a big beat on EPS. However, CEO David Klein says that beat was due to accounting abnormalities. And instead of earnings, Klein says investors should really focus on Canopy, having the number one flower and drinkable brands in Canada and the Martha Stewart CBD line being number three right here in the U.S. You see their products right here. Now, Klein admits even he got a little bit too excited about U.S. legalization, but now he says Canopy Growth's focus is strictly on Canada. We need to execute in Canada and use Canada as that test market to develop brands like our Quattro brand, uh, which which we innovated in Canada. We launched in Canada. When we saw the success in Canada, we brought only the CBD version, but we brought the CBD version to the U.S., But you have to keep in mind, Canada is only a fraction of the $23 billion U.S. market. Klein says the company's acquisition of U.S.-based acreage has it ready for legalization if and when it happens. And Canopy has roughly $2 billion to spend on U.S. acquisitions. We created the playbook for investing into the U.S. THC businesses by Canadian LPs. And we're going to continue to use that capability to position ourselves to be a leading player in the U.S. THC market when the U.S. market opens. And so, yeah, that will be investing more behind the things that we own, but it'll also be looking at buying new things in the U.S. And Canadian cannabis stocks a bit mixed today after Canopy earnings. We see Canopy up almost a percent. However, Aurora down about a half a percent. The broader sector still up more than 20 percent for the year. Still ahead, shares of car gurus hired today after beating on earnings and issuing some very strong guidance. We'll talk to the CEO about the growing divergence between new and used car supply and what that means for prices. The exchange will be right back. back to the exchange. Shares of CarGuru, 7% higher on stronger-than-expected earnings. The online automotive marketplace saw revenue surge 130% year-over-year as the global chip shortage and pandemic buying squeezed inventories, leading to higher prices for new and for used cars. And CarGurus is leaning into the e-commerce trend with its new instant max cash offer to help people sell their vehicles 100% online. Here for a CNBC exclusive interview, let's welcome Car Guru CEO Jason Trevison. Jason, thanks for being here. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for having us. So, Jason, I mean, I think we're all seeing the prices increase. Um, car demand also higher than ever. What's more in demand, used cars or new or new cars? And how's pricing influencing those decisions for consumers? Sure. So uh, it is a very strange time in the industry right now, and it's all spurred by the chip shortage uh, that began last year. So uh, demand is high for sure. Suburbanization continues, and that's uh, and, and movement away from mass transit continues. So so demand is high. The bigger issue though is that supply is constrained. Uh, new inventory in particular is down about sixty percent year over year. It's been decades since we've had a, a situation like that. Uh, Production is expected to accelerate in August, but it's down right now. Used inventory has ebbed and flowed. It declined for several months in the beginning of this year, but it's now slowly starting to, to recover. So that imbalance, high, high demand, lower supply, has pushed prices up significantly. New car pricing is up about 15% year over year. Used car pricing, much more significant, is up about 35% year over year. 
Wow, I've experienced that personally. I actually sold a used car for more about a month ago than I was offered for it before the pandemic. So, um, so that, that's happening to a lot of folks. I so it's, it's even happening. more important, right? Yeah. Yeah, so sorry, sorry to cut you off. So really quick, we want to look at your numbers a bit more. You saw an 82% increase in the revenue that you're getting from dealers. You don't actually buy or sell cars. Can you kind of explain your service for dealers and why is it so much more in demand? Sure. So part of it is is the comp we had from last year. During COVID and Q2, we gave our dealers a, uh, a significant discount to help them manage through uh, the, the, the early days of the pandemic. Uh, but we have grown our, our subscription since then. So uh, correct. Today, our core foundational business is an online automotive marketplace where we connect the largest inventory of cars from the largest install base of dealers with the largest audience of consumers. And uh, dealers pay us a subscription fee to get access to certain tools and certain features on our site. And consumers, uh, for consumers, it's entirely free. And what's different about our platform versus others is, is we give the most unbiased and transparent deal ratings on the cars. So we help consumers understand with used cars in particular, uh, if it's a good deal, great deal, fair deal, and, uh, and feedback on the dealer as well. So looking forward to the second half of the year, what kind of cars or vehicles overall do you see more in demand, whether they be new or used? Or is it SUVs? Is it fuel efficient vehicles? Is it even electric vehicles? Sure. So electric vehicle, I think a lot of the trends that were occurring before COVID are continuing. Electric vehicles are a, are a small percentage today, but there's rapid growth there. Uh, there continues in the U.S. certainly to be a, a push toward larger vehicles, trucks and, and SUVs. And uh, I think that will continue uh, as we come out of this inventory constrained environment. All right. Thank you, Jason Trevison, CEO of Car Gurus. Appreciate you. All right, still ahead, we're just a few weeks away from September and the fight over mandatory masking and vaccinations for both students and teachers, that's still raging, threatening a supply of educators that's already stretched pretty thin. We'll dig into that next. The Exchange, we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. New Jersey enacting a mask mandate for students in schools just a half an hour ago. The debate about masking for kids has been heated since the start of the pandemic. And now it's coupled with potential vaccination mandates as well. With the school year just around the corner, some states, they're still looking for teachers. Kate Rogers joins me now with that story. Hey, Kate. Hey, Frank. Well, we've been tracking the nationwide teacher shortage for years long before the pandemic, but COVID has the potential to exacerbate this situation. Nearly one in four teachers said they were likely to leave by the end of the 2021 school year. Nearly 80% reported feeling job-related stress last year. That's according to recent data from the American Federation of Teachers and RAND. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott has said that schools cannot enforce mask mandate, but union leaders in the state are pushing for districts to make their own rules. Governor Abbott needs to allow local districts and cities to make the best decisions for themselves, depending on their COVID situation. Right. We often hear about local control um, and, it, you know, Republicans only want local control when it suits them. And in a moment like this, each um, city and district needs to be allowed to enact the safety protocols in order to keep people safe. Unions and advocates fear that these fights could exacerbate a lack of teachers if funding winds up being pulled for schools that enforce mandates. But not all parents want to see universal masking policies put in place at schools. Unmask Our Kids is a local group in Connecticut that held a rally against masks for kids in schools just this week. 
it's like the finish line just keeps moving. Oh, we have, you know, if we do this, then it'll be over. Oh, no, now it's if we do this, then it'll be over. Oh, no, now if it's we do this, it'll be over. I mean, what are we teaching our kids? You know, there's no end. So a lot of back and forth here between the school districts, the unions, the parents, the teachers. So much tension there, Frank. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out this year. Yeah, Kate, a lot going on. Hopefully more teachers come back to the classroom. Great story. We appreciate it. That does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.